Hello everybody, my name is Aidan Regan. I'm an assistant professor at University College Dublin and director of the Jean Monnet Centre of Excellence in the New Political Economy of Europe. We're developing a new podcast series at this centre aimed at debating questions and puzzles in the European political economy to move beyond the classroom and to reach out to new communities. Today we spoke with Professor David Soskis about his new co-authored book with Torben Iverson, Democracy and Prosperity, Reinventing Capitalism Through a Turbulent Century. This is a provocative book, it's a controversial book. The book argues that contrary to pessimistic assumptions about globalization, skills-based technological change, rising nationalist populism, the advanced capitalist democracies of the world are very resilient. Democracy and capitalism, it is argued, mutually reinforce each other. And the core reason for this is that the median voter supports those policies that underpin advanced democracies. The median voter, in this perspective, does not want redistribution downwards. Rather, they want access to the new economy, both for them and their kids. Capitalist democracy is primarily about generating the conditions for economic growth and improving the living standards of the middle class. So far, so good. Central to their argument is the role of education and skills development, which they argue is the fundamental determinant of the new economy and the advanced sectors of the new economy, think ICT. Drawing upon extensive research and economic geography, they show that the business cluster effect of graduate skilled workers in urban cities is what drives the agglomeration effect of the new economy. High-tech growth in this perspective is city-based growth. The public policies that are necessary to support economic growth in the advanced sectors of the economy require a strong nation-state. In this regard, the book disagrees with Thomas Piketty and Wolfgang Streich, whom they refer to, rather strangely, as Marxists, on the governing capacities of the state in a world of free-flowing capital. For them, high-tech business and state elites are in coalition, and the coalition is aimed at generating economic and employment growth for the middle class. The book argues that a growing divergence is opening up between those with higher education and those without, and the geographic segregation between urban and rural centres of growth is what drives nationalist populism. However, and somewhat controversially, they do not see the rise of nationalist populism as an existential threat to the advanced capitalist democracies. For them, nationalist populism or nativism is rooted in the dynamics of economic and material change, but it's not about redistribution, and it's not about tackling inequality. The old middle and new working classes have grievances, but the new middle class, that is the expansion of graduate students every year, in this perspective, want access to the new economy, and they want access to the advanced sectors of the economy. Therefore, they want access to higher education, better research, ICT, finance, legal, and they'll vote for it. Hence, in this perspective, and in this book, the argument is that the new middle classes will vote for public policies that complement the underlying logical structure of capitalist democracy and will not vote for democratic socialism. I disagree with a lot of this book. It largely assumes that the new economy is capable of generating enough high-skill, high-income jobs to underpin the expansion of the middle class that is so central to their argument. It does not mention wealth or housing inequality, financialization, the massive educational skills gap that's opening up, the brave new world of central banking, corporate and wealth concentration, and it is very optimistic about the steering capacities of the nation-state. However, it is an interesting perspective, so let's go speak with David. Well, thank you, David, for coming along to the UCD School of Politics and having this fantastic conversation with us and for discussing your new book, Democracy and Prosperity. Um, as I read the book, uh, the core thesis is ultimately capitalist democracies are resilient because they generate a constituency of middle-class voters who have a vested interest in the advanced sectors of the economy and will ultimately vote for policies that support that. 
And in that sense, there's a kind of symbiosis between democracy and capitalism, and in particular in the advanced sectors, because of the cluster effect that that generates in urban cities. And of course, you talk a lot about national populism, and populism is a, is a threat, but it doesn't, does not existentially threaten actually existing capitalism as we understand it today. Um, is that a fair statement about your book? And if so, why are they so resilient? Why are advanced capitalist democracies so resilient? I, I, mean, I don't... Uh, we're, we're looking at a very long period of time mm. and quite how populism is going to, is going to work and affect things is, is still in the future, or rather we can have ideas about it, but... Um, <clears throat> What I think we what I think we wanted to to say, what I think we want to get away from is first of all the idea that advanced capitalist systems are in some sense dictated by advanced capitalism. We actually argue that advanced capitalism politically is pretty weak in a country like the UK and indeed we wouldn't have expected um, Boris Johnson uh, as a leading member of the government at the time, to say, fuck business, if business was this very dominant influence on what was happening. And indeed, we wouldn't have expected to see Brexit, to which business, by and large, or at least all the advanced sectors of business, are deeply opposed. We wouldn't have expected to see Brexit happening if uh, advanced capitalism was what was dictating what goes on in the in the UK. So one thing which we want to say was what's going on is not driven by what's happening to advanced capitalism. Advanced capitalism may be very important in developing countries like, like Brazil. It's not important politically as a political force in the in the UK. So that's one thing we definitely want to say. Uh, we also want to say that um, yeah, a country like the UK still, or most advanced or advanced economies, have a lot of autonomy. They can most economies can choose within within uh, within a lot of areas uh, about what political policies are going to be are going to be followed. Um, and that's a political choice rather than a choice which is imposed on them in some sense by the, by the outside. And the underlying question which we were interested in, which is this pretty extraordinary fact that the advanced capitalist democracies of the period just after the end of the First World War, which basically the countries which had industrialized in the 19th century and the early 20th century and have become democracies by this was by 1920 or so all these countries are still advanced capitalist democracies 100 years later of course they've gone through 1935-45 period but they but if you go up to go up to the present and you look at these countries they're still advanced capitalist democracies with the exception of Czechoslovakia as it happens so we were taking this as a um, really pretty interesting question, which actually people haven't haven't really haven't really sort of thought about as a people haven't really taken this to be a question to 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 explain. Indeed, most most of the most of the 
powerful theorists of, of advanced capitalism have been explaining, have been set to explain the opposite, namely why the whole thing is is breaking is breaking up or is likely to likely to break up. So those were the longer term things which we wanted to explain, and our view has been that uh, government you need to have strong governments, but those governments will do the right things so long as they have a democratic mandate to do so or as long as they push democratically to do so. And our view was, or is, that um, the, there is a majority in the electorate, or at least there are a lot of people in the electorate, uh, who do feel strongly that governments should be, that they vote for, vote for governments and vote for parties, which have proved their competence at economic, economic management. And um, <clears throat> so we, we say, well... Who's going to benefit from the advanced sector economy? Well, people who work in the advanced sector economy to start with. And then a large number of aspirational voters who want their children to benefit from jobs in the, the advanced economy. They will vote for them, or a lot, they'll vote for parties which they see as having a good reputation for economic management of, of, these, of these sectors. And that then pushes, actually, it pushes all leading parties to take economic management extremely seriously and for the last 50, 60, almost probably 100 years, actually when you, when you look at elections you see parties talking about economic management, that economic management is an absolutely central part of the way in which the electoral system works. So I might then just perhaps push you a little bit on that because in that sense <clears throat> what really matters is that you have an expanding middle class, right? Yes. And then in the book, you measure that through the expansion of graduates and the, and, and the growth in higher education numbers. Others have tried to get at it by looking at questions of occupational upgrading and the type of new jobs that are being created and whether or not you have more good jobs being created than bad jobs. Um, so I wonder, you know, in particularly over the past 10 to 15 years, do we see an expansion of the middle classes <coughs> as a core constituency? And if not, what does that tell us about so I think this is really the really a deeply important question. The last ten years, uh, let's say up to let's say up to the financial crisis in two thousand seven two thousand eight, things were going okay. There was a big expansion of of graduates and a large expansion of of graduate jobs. Last ten years, uh, there have been a lot of problems about expanding graduate jobs in line with the expansion of people going to going to university and um, that's true in most countries it's definitely true in the in the UK and I think it's a big problem because if you as came back to what we were saying earlier if you if you want aspirational voters to vote for governments which are pushing the advanced sectors of the economy uh, you're going to get that when there are when the when if you go to university, you get a good, a good job, and good jobs have been have been growing far more slowly for a very straightforward reason that we've been going through this prolonged quasi recession. It's not it's not an unemployment problem. We've governments have managed to reduce unemployment during this period. But they've done that by create by allowing 
less good jobs to be created. They haven't done it through an expansion of, of graduate jobs, and that's a huge problem. So in a sense, the, the, there's a certain irony here whereby arguably one would need more technocratic economic policies to be pursued in the interest of public investment, higher education, vocational training. Um, but of course, technocracy uh, is precisely the, the, the enemy of populism, which is often which is the emergence of those who have grievances from that sector. So in that sense, the choice is technocracy or populism and about trying to get the balance together. But in the book, you focus, I think, a lot, and, it's, and I think it's very useful, on this idea of the, the Great Gatsby curve. <coughs> on the relationship between inequality and intergenerational mobility. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the, in the, in, in the, that data would suggest that those countries that are more, more equal have more levels of social mobility. And conversely, the more unequal society, the lower the level of social mobility. And then those countries who are more equal tend to also have more popular support for redistribution, which kind of becomes its own self-reinforcing logic in favour of more egalitarian outcomes. Whereas countries that are more unequal tend not to vote more redistribution. I found this very interesting in, in the book. So it made me think, though, and this is my question, does one require social democracy to make possible the conditions for advanced capitalism? Well, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I, uh, I hope the answer is not, <laughs> is not completely... Uh, I... I think we need so i think if you take the uk it's got a relatively high level of inequality high level of inequality uh we have to think far <coughs> far more carefully and um and seriously and maybe technocratically about how do we how do we actually engineer this how do we how do we pull apart the gatsby curve how do we say yeah, it's true. Looking, it's true. If if uh, true, if income distribution is unequal, you know, kids aren't going to go to to the. There won't be enough school places really capable of getting kids into university if they go there. So you don't get kids going to university, and um, the you have a, a lower rate of social mobility uh, and. And so on. Um, so how do we how do we deal with can we deal with that more di- more directly? And I do think that it that if we start off with inequality, we have to work out a way. Both are coming to terms with the with the education thing. How do we actually get better education uh, and get kids who've come from less advantaged backgrounds into both into schools which can prepare them to go to university and to get into good university courses. But then we have to work out a way, how do we, how do we find, how do we get, make sure they get good jobs when they come out of university? And this is where I think, actually, that the, we need to think more in what one might think of as social democratic terms. A very simple view would be to say, well, look, we are massively behind on the number of doctors we train at the moment, we ludicrously get doctors who've been trained by poor countries, which have devoted a lot of resources to training these doctors, and then we have to pay to train them ourselves. Ludicrous. So the first thing, if one was looking at this from a longer-term perspective, one might say is, uh, what are the major 
sectors of the economy which are going to need more educated educated manpower to uh, to 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 supply to, to supply with with jobs and one of those sectors is is the health sector there are actually two major sectors health and education those are the two major sectors where if you look forward in other countries you see these are the two sectors countries advanced countries are focusing on we should absolutely be be saying that and we should be pretty straightforward that if we if we're to do this we need to have graduate jobs for doctors and nurses and my own view is that that should be extended to carers because actually the caring professions are going to become increasingly increasingly important as we as the population get, gets older and I think those have been very undervalued jobs where people haven't been given enough enough training and so I would like to see us and this is a sort of social democratic approach to it I'd like to see us say okay well we need to spend a lot more money on training uh, doctors, nurses, teachers, carers. And we would do that in line with increasing the throughput of young people through universities in ways which would give them, which would mean that they would move at the end of this, not into second-rate jobs or the gig economy, but into genuine graduate jobs. That, that would be my, my okay. way of going around it. The other dimension to the book, which is fascinating, is bringing in <coughs> very detailed research on economic geography to political economy. And the book argues that increasingly what we observe is the advanced sectors of the economy concentrated in cities uh, and the urbanization that comes with that, which means that there is a growing segregation between um, rural and urban and then the economic geography of jobs uh, and growth between different city regions. Um, you might tell us a little bit about the importance of that city effect, the cluster effect, and what makes that possible. Well, I think it's hugely important. I think it's absolutely central to what's going on. Actually, in pretty much all the advanced countries we've we've looked at, I think it works in different ways, but it, this effect is is big and it's crucial. If you look at it in relation to um, to to the um, to the UK, what what we're seeing in the UK is a certain number of cities are growing very or have grown very effectively the so-called agglomeration effect and at the same time as that the agglomeration effect let's talk, talk a little bit about agglomeration effect because that's sort of behind it increasingly with the knowledge economy companies need more and more able educated people to work for them but they need to work uh, they, they need people to work together they, they, they need co-location of workers you typically get with co-location of workers you get areas where there'll be a whole number of companies let's say working in, in finance is a very obvious example in in the city of London uh, but there are many other examples uh, examples of this and that then means that you uh, you, you get more and more Young people, typically young people with degrees, maybe young professionals, whatever, coming in and working in the in city city centres. 
And that then pushes up house prices in city centres. It means that people who are renting but don't have high incomes are being pushed out of city centres. So you're getting a replacement effect in these growing cities where on the one hand you have this beneficial effect of young, well-educated people coming and living in the in city centres, but this bad effect, this uh, centrifugal effect of less well-educated people typically being pushed out and living outside in not in not necessarily in the not necessarily rural areas, but in smaller towns, smaller cities, smaller towns, and this then becomes a real a real segregation effect, which is a very very dangerous effect for society where. In the big cities, you have people who are graduates and well-educated, who are earning good, good incomes, uh, and um, who uh, typically have a different, whole different culture and approach to life as people living outside in smaller cities and smaller towns. And that has got to be a very, very dangerous a dangerous recipe for a society. I mean, you can put it in this simple way of saying we're in this extraordinary situation at the moment where half of young people go to university and half don't. What on earth is that going to do to, to society if we get that sort of division? And then that division gets replicated geographically with graduates in big cities, non-graduates, non-graduates outside, wholly different cultures developing um, and a really unequal set of outcomes in a whole lot of different ways. And of course that leads us perhaps onto the big question of the day which is Brexit, uh, which is related to a lot of these things. But I have read some pieces, I think there's a lot of research has been done, I think we know a lot about the determinants of the vote and why people voted the way they did. We know a lot about how that intersects between income, education, skill level, gender and so on. But I think there's a lot of research done on that. But I have some, I've read some things recently which I found peculiar, which is certain authors suggesting that the European Union itself was somehow responsible for the type of growth model that emerged within Britain over the past 10, 15, 20 years. It seems to me that the challenges facing the UK are very much domestic policies and they're domestic policy choices. Whether we're talking about inequality or polarization, these are things that are the product of choices of the growth model within the UK. So, so what's your take on that in terms of Brexit? How, to what extent is the European Union responsible for? Well, I don't believe it is. And I don't believe that Europe, I mean, I think we pursued really stupid policies economically in terms of growth. Uh, in terms of attempts at growth, which have which have failed miserably, but I don't see the European Union as responsible for that. I mean, not that the European Union, uh, as you were, has exactly a clean slate mm. when it comes to economic policies. I don't think they do. I think that they have uh, they they have very much underwritten the austerity policies which have been pursued by a lot of countries, including the UK. But I, but I think this was our very much our own choice to do that. And what has happened has, is a sort of, it's a, almost a standard story. Um, you, have a, you have a huge recession, you have a huge financial crash. Uh, countries build up large 
debts as governments try and bail out banks and so on. And then uh, governments look, look around in horror and see the, see the, the height of their national public sector debt and then try and reduce it. And that's doing that which then deleveraging, which then leads to this really, um, really sh sharp uh, austerity policies where governments are trying to cut public expenditure in order to get the debt down. Now, you might well say, why do governments cut public expenditure? Why don't they governments increase taxation? That's one question, which is quite an interesting question to ask. And it's, um, and it's quite telling that we do this. And it's, uh, you, you feel it's quite a conservative reaction. And it would be very interesting to look carefully at countries where you didn't have conservative governments to see whether the same policies were being pursued. But I don't think the policies were hugely different. So that may be something at the, to, to hold at the door of democracy, uh, because although I do think democracy drives, drives a lot of things in a beneficial direction, I think there are also things which are not necessarily driven in a beneficial direction. I think this choice between cutting public expenditure rather than raising taxation is probably reflects governments being influenced by the force of, of democracy. Mm. How do you see Brexit playing out in the next few months? Um, <clears throat> I, I think it's unlikely that there will be a no deal simply because there is I think a clear parliamentary majority against it and I think that the choice which the Prime Minister made or the direction the Prime Minister made uh, just recently to uh, <coughs> try and renegotiate the, the treaty by renegotiating the backstop makes virtually no sense. So quite why Conservative MPs felt they had to back it, I don't know. But at the moment the government is in a completely contradictory situation. It, it wants to have backstop, but it doesn't want to have, uh, wants to have backstop. It wants to have completely free movement between uh, Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. But it's not prepared to have a customs union. So that's really, really, and those are so, those are Theresa May's ludicrous so-called red lines. It's really not clear why she got a majority of MPs to vote in favour of that. <clears throat> Unless the Conservatives were really worried that the alternative was a general election and they were worried that they would lose a general election. I don't know whether they would, but it's very difficult to quite understand why so many Conservative MPs who were in, to have been in general opposed to what she's been doing should now turn around and support her. Maybe they believed her when she said she, she could go back to Brussels and renegotiate the, um, the backstop. Difficult to see quite how, how she can do that and come out with the things she wants to come out with, namely uh, no, no customs union, the ability to 
for us to negotiate trade agreements where, where we want to negotiate them. At the same time, uh, no borders between North and South, North, North, Northern Ireland and ERA, and no borders, but no uh, no barriers between moving from ERA, from North Ireland to the rest of the United Kingdom. We shall see. I mean, I can't, yes. I can't believe my compatriots or those on the Conservative Party benches are quite as are quite as dumb as this. But we'll have to see. We will have to see, and I suppose it is, uh, it's going to be an interesting few months and very topical and central to what we're trying to do here now at the new Jean Monnet Centre on thinking about the new political economy of Europe. So thank you very much for your time, Professor Soskis, and um, we hope to hear from you again soon. And thank you very much for a very, very, very stimulating discussion and afternoon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks.